13, verses 1 through 30, could be found in your pew book, page 218 and 219. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father and to, said to the man, be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father said to him, behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners, who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gabeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places, and spend the night at Gabeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gabeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside and there to go in and spend the night at Gabeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gabeah. The men of the place were were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. For we have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house 
and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his house. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Well, it's a great pleasure and an honor to be with you all today. I have a soft spot for Beeson, even though I've only been here twice. I spoke at Samford University last year and uh, popped in informally to see friends at Beeson. Uh, but my thoughts about Beeson go much, much longer. It was, I think, 33 years ago. Uh, I got my PhD and I wrote to various institutions desperately looking for a job. Uh, and only one person replied. Uh, he didn't have a job for me. Uh, but I got a lovely, long, kind and encouraging letter from uh, Dean Timothy George, which I've always been extremely grateful. So I have uh, a soft spot in my heart for Beeson Divinity School, as I say, even though you haven't invited me to speak until today. So it is <laughs> great to be here. And it's an honor to be giving the Reformation lectures. Uh, my lectures are going to focus on the Reformation and the modern mind. I'm going to look at the problems on uh, Wednesday and then try to offer some potential solutions on Thursday. But today, I want to focus on this passage in Judges. So let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of His Word and then have a look at this very difficult passage. O oh Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, You are a God who dwells in unapproachable light. We are aware, O oh Lord, of our finiteness and indeed our fallenness before You. And when we read passages like this, Lord, and we see in all of its terrifying depravity, human nature, fallen human nature in the raw, we're at a loss. 
the destructiveness of those you made to be just a little lower than the angels. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that as we turn to this passage, you would open it to us. You would shine your light into our darkened hearts that we might come away even from this darkest place in Scripture, having a clearer, sharper, more profound vision of Christ Jesus and his love. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One reason I chose this passage is that uh, I assumed that anyone who looked at the order of worship in advance may well just come in order to find out what I was going to say about it. It is perhaps the darkest passage in Scripture. I hesitate to say that a little because, of course, the death of Christ is, this is very dark passages. But this passage is in many ways more graphic and more terrifying. It is the very nadir, I think, of Israel's existence, at least prior to the rise of the kings. It occurs at a point in the narrative of Judges, which is really, uh, I, I think, been a narrative of steady decline. By and large, in the book of Judges, things start to go wrong fairly early on, and although there are moments of revival, moments of moral restitution, on the whole, the story is one of downward decline. And even the great heroes of the book of Judges, when you look at their lives in detail, are not quite as heroic, perhaps, as the Hollywood movies would make them to be. Samson is a man who seems to have remarkable contempt for his status as a Nazarite. Gideon arguably leaves Israel in a worse condition when he dies than when he was first called to be a judge. And I know that uh, commentators are divided over exactly what the fate of Jephthah's daughter is. I myself happen to think that he did sacrifice her. Jephthah is a remarkably ambiguous figure, however one comes down on that particular issue. And then we come to the final chapters. Immediately before this story, we've read about the corruption of a family, a man called Micah and his mother, a very dysfunctional household that fosters idolatry. And we get hints there of the corruption of the priesthood. Micah hires his own sort of private Levite, Jonathan, to administer his idols, to administer his idolatry, to be his own personal priest. And then we read about the corruption of the tribe of Dan, tribe of Dan ride into town and they steal Michael's, Micah's idols and his priest. And we're getting the picture in these final chapters that things are beginning to spin out of control. And that is confirmed for us in chapter 19. The plot of chapter 19 is pretty straightforward. Uh, it involves an unnamed Levite. Uh, I don't think it is the same Levite who was involved with uh, uh, Jonathan and, uh, and his idolatry, Micah and his idolatry, uh, who's this unnamed Levite and his concubine. We don't really have, I think, a concept in English that truly captures what concubine means. Uh, sometimes people think of it as a mistress, a sort of piece on the side, if you like. I think it's more uh, appropriate to think of her as a kind of second-class wife. And certainly that is at maximum the status that a husband will ascribe to her in this passage. 
And as the story begins, we hear that this second-class wife has uh, committed adultery. Reading between the lines, one might say that perhaps uh, one of the things that drove her to that was the treatment from her husband, because he clearly is not a very loving husband as the story goes on. He goes to retrieve her. She's gone to her father. He goes to retrieve her. And then we have this sort of semi-farcical account of the father-in-law delaying his departure that reads almost like a comedy sketch. I actually think it's very important for understanding what the passage is doing, that in the first half of the story, we have this ridiculous scenario developing. There's a sense in which if it was a movie, if you only watched a halfway, you'd think you were watching a comedy. And that will make the second half that much more sinister and that much more terrifying. Finally, the Levite uh, gets away from his father-in-law. He sets off home, and as night approaches, the party is near city Jebus. But the Levite will not stop in Jebus because it's a non-Israelite city. He doesn't want to trust himself to a non-Israelite city. So he's going to stay on the road until they get to Gibeah. And there, they are offered hospitality by an old man. But not just any old man. I think, again, it's significant. This man's an outsider. He's from the hill country of Ephraim. He's not one of the natives of the place. He's a sojourner in the city. And that, of course, is when the terrible and sinister events of the latter half of the chapter take place. While experiencing hospitality from this man, the men of the city surround the house and demand that the Levite is thrown out so that they can rape him and sexually assault him. The old man refuses to accede to their demands, even offers his own daughters in order that the hospitality of his house should not be compromised in this way. And finally, of course, the husband throws his own concubine out uh, where she is either raped to death or raped to near the point of death. And in a final blood-curdling scene, the Levite departs, divides up her corpse, which he then sends throughout Israel as testimony to the crime. And just as an aside to sort of disturb, make this passage even more disturbing than it self-evidently is, what's interesting about the latter part of this passage is we're never told when the concubine dies. Does she die as a result of the assault? Or does she die as a result of her husband cutting her into pieces? We're not told. It's one of those cliffhanger, sinister stories that should rightly outrage us and send shivers down our spines. Well, what are we to make of this? This seems to be an unremitting scene of depravity. The first thing I want you to notice is the very first verse, which sort of sets up the play. It's a bit of a refrain in these latter chapters of the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel. It's a testimony, of course, not simply to the chronological location of the book of Judges prior to the establishment of the kingdom. It's also a statement, we might say, of the moral or theological condition of the people at this point. God is their king. Remember later when Samuel... And when the Israelites demand a king and Samuel goes to the Lord uh, and he's, he's pretty upset about this and the Lord essentially says to Samuel, 
don't you be upset. It's not you they've rejected, it's me. It's not you they've rejected, it's me. What we're being told at the start of this, of course, is that this is a nation, this is a people where the lordship of God, the kingship of God has been rejected. And I would suggest one of the things this passage teaches us is this. Once God's kingship is rejected, sooner or later everything is up for grabs. Made in God's image, made to respond to God's word and to his commands, if we reject God, we ultimately reject that which we are. If God is not king, we choose to be our own kings. And we choose to define ourselves in any way we wish. I think it puts the lie to the polite atheism of the Richard Dawkins and the Daniel Dennett's of this world. Nietzsche, I think, is a much more accurate judge of what atheism does. Some of you may have read the famous madman scene in Nietzsche's book, The Joyful of the Gay Science. And the madman comes into the town square one morning and starts haranguing those who are standing around, telling them that God is dead. What's interesting about the first people he harangues are they're polite atheists. And they just don't get it. The madman's trying to say, do you realize the language you use? You've unhitched the earth from the sun. God can wash the blood off our hands. You can't politely get rid of God and remain polite. And then he says something very interesting towards the end. He says, I have come too soon. My time is not yet. Thunder and lightning take time. The light that comes from the stars takes time. It takes time from the rejection of God for the full consequences of that to migrate from the intellectuals to everybody. That's what you've got here in Israel. It's taken time. We get hints of it in chapter 1 that God is being thrown off as king and it's taken its time for the full consequences to manifest themselves. But here in Judges 19, this concubine is not to the Benjamites nor to her husband, a human person made in the image of God. She's a lump of sexualized meat to be thrown out for them to do with whatever they wish and for then for the Levite to chop up into pieces to send his message to Israel. Judges 19 shows the terror, the disorientation, the moral vortex that is a world and a people without God. I'm going to be in Manhattan early next week. The wine bars and the coffee shops will be full of polite atheists. But this, this is where it leads. Secondly, we notice in this passage, the nature of sin is defacing the image of God. Relative to hospitality. In some ways, this is a great passage about hospitality and then a complete lack of hospitality. Hospitality is central to biblical ethics, as it is in Near Eastern culture in general. 1986, friend of myself, we caught the bus in London. Uh, we uh, traveled to Athens, three days and three nights on a coach. 
Absolute nightmare, I have to say. Scarred me for life. Very strange people get the bus in London and go all the way to Athens. That's all I can tell you. And then we spent two months just backpacking around Greece and Turkey. And those were the days where you didn't arrive and then text your mum to let you know you were okay. Those were the days when you kind of vanished off the face of the earth for a couple of months. And your parents just hoped you made it back at some point. I look back, I think I was 19. My parents must have been insane to let me do that. But one of the things I noticed in Turkey, which is officially a secular country, but the culture is very much shaped by Islam, was wherever my friend and I went, people opened their houses to us. Muslim people opened their houses to us because they took hospitality very seriously. And even though we were just a couple of Western guys bumming around with backpacks, they gave us hospitality. They looked after us as we made our way to the east of Turkey. Hospitality is very, very important in ancient Near Eastern and indeed modern Near Eastern culture. Think of the commands in the Old Testament to care for and show hospitality to the sojourner, the stranger, the foreigner. Continues in the New Testament, of course. Matthew 25, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Hebrews 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. It's a qualification for eldership. Many of you here are going into the Christian ministry. Don't forget that being able to teach is only one of the qualifications. Hospitality is there too. Why? Because we, as the people of God, are to demonstrate the character of God to the world around us. Exactly as it was for the Israelites, so it is for us today. Every Christian, I think, is to be hospitable. The role of elders is to set a great example of that. Remember what the Lord says, Deuteronomy 10. The Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. And then he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Hospitality is at the heart of the church's testimony. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, by the love you have for each other. Not, I dare say, by the way we trash each other on Twitter. By the love we have for each other. And yet here we see this interesting contrast, isn't it? First half of the passage is all about hospitality. Crazy, over-the-top hospitality. And as I said, if you were watching this, if this was a movie and you watched the halfway point, you'd think it was a farce or a comedy. And then they arrive in Gibeah. And you probably watch those movies where you think you're watching a comedy and suddenly something happens and you, you realize, man, this is going in a different direction to the one I expected. Sometimes it's indicated by the change in the music. Suddenly the music moves into a minor key or something like that. That's what happened you know that something is going badly wrong when this man, his servant, and his concubine are not offered hospitality by any of the people in the city. 
Only the stranger and the sojourner opens his house to them. That's when you know this is no longer a comic farce. Something serious and sinister is occurring. The tragedy of Gibeah starts with the fact that the hospitality is only provided by another sojourner. And the townspeople demonstrate the extreme antithesis to hospitality. There, I think, lies a challenge for us. I've said, many of you will be going into the ministry. All of you, hopefully, will be involved in churches. One of the things that is to characterize our lives as Christians is hospitality. Opening our doors to those that we don't know. Why do I remember Timothy George's letter to me? Because I was a nobody, and he was kind. He gave me a kind of hospitality. Encouraged me to keep on with my work and all that kind of stuff. Last year I was speaking in London and the guy setting up the uh, lecture said to me, uh, I see we were on the faculty at the University of Nottingham together in the mid-90s. I don't think we ever met. And I emailed him back and I said, did you own a red sports car? And he said, yes. I said, we met. I remember your car. Uh, He said, well, I'm ashamed of that now. I said, don't be. I own a red sports car now. I think they're great. The reason I remembered him was this. First Sunday, I was at Nottingham, all on my own because my wife was teaching out her contract in Scotland. He and his wife invited me back for dinner after church. They showed me hospitality. He doesn't remember me because he's given hospitality to hundreds of people probably. But you always remember the people who gave you hospitality, or you should. Hospitality is a challenge to us. When you read this passage, I think hospitality. It's part of the image of God, isn't it? If God is a hospitable God, then reflecting his image should mean that we are hospitable too. Thirdly, Sodom is alive and well in Israel. Of course, you're all very competent students. And I'm sure you're very familiar with the analog passage to this in the Old Testament. Genesis 19. Kind of helpful that they're both numbered 19. I don't know if that was the plan of the original uh, uh, chapter divisions. Genesis 19, of course, Sodom. Similar thing happens. The men of Sodom try to kidnap and rape Lot, a righteous sojourner in a pagan city. Their plans are foiled. But the writer of Judges clearly wants you to have that passage in mind as he writes this, because I think I'm right in saying, and Professor Ginnellert would be far more competent, is a total understatement. Uh, I think I've forgotten the very little Hebrew that I ever learned. Professor Ginnellert can confirm or deny this, but I believe that 25% of the Hebrew in this passage comes from the Genesis 19 passage. Genesis 19 is a literary and linguistic model for this passage. And the point being made is you're supposed to have the two passages in mind as you read this. The thing is, that was Sodom. That was them out there. The other guys. A friend of mine told me he was driving around the south once and he didn't know what the political party was, but he saw a, a, an, elector, an electoral poster saying, Vote for so-and-so. He's one of us. 
not one of them. Sodom is them. But this is us. This is the sting. After 18 chapters, we've reached the point where the people of God are a minimum indistinguishable from the people around them. Maximally, they might be worse. Probably this would not have happened if they'd stayed in Jebus that night. It happens because of the depravity in Israel itself. That's a reminder to us, I think, that whenever we look at the sins of the world around us, our first response should not be, we thank you, Lord, that we are not like other men. Our first response has to be, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Question, of course, just as an aside, it fascinates me, why doesn't the Lord just wipe out the Benjaminites at this point? That would, you know, he, why doesn't he do to Benjamin what he did to Sodom? I don't think we have any answer to that. But I'll read you a passage in the New Testament that might give us a hint. Philippians 3, 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm guessing most of us in this room came to faith because of the mission to the Gentiles. And therefore, we are the spiritual descendants of the Apostle Paul. I think there's something in this passage that reminds us that much as you can imagine, the father of this girl would have cried out for vengeance that day when he'd heard what had gone on. We must remember that God's sovereign purposes and God's wisdom far transcend the grasp that we have of his plan. And that brings me finally to the nature of true love. What we do not see from the Levite to his concubine is love. The Levite sacrifices his concubine to save his own skin. That's how much she means to him. Purely instrumental to his own needs. One of my favorite quotations from uh, British politics I love the British Parliament because they make these speeches and they're rude to each other. But it's very un-British in some ways. Parliament is much more passionate in Parliament than we generally are out on the street. Famous incident in the early 60s where the Prime Minister of the time, Harold Macmillan, had fired a significant number of his cabinet in a desperate attempt to save his own Prime Ministership. And a young MP who later went on to become leader of the Labour Party, a man called Michael Foote, stood up and in his speech about what had gone on, he said this, Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his friends for his life. A stunning inversion, of course, of the, the biblical text. Tra sadly, if somebody in Parliament said that today, nobody would get it. They probably wouldn't grasp what he was doing. But that's what this concubine does. Greater love hath no man than this, than he lay down his concubine to save his own skin. What a blasphemy. The relationship of husband and wife is supposed to be patterned on Christ's love for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Husband and wife are one flesh. Husband's meant to love his wife. Therefore a man shall leave his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The sacrificing of the second-class wife by the Levite to save his own skin is a lesson by way of the negative of what God is like. As with the men of the town, so with this Levite, we might say, the likeness to God has been all but annihilated. A lot of talk, of course, and we get into this here, a lot of talk about male headship these days in the church. Seems to me that what Paul is saying there is that the husband has the right, or perhaps better, the duty to die for his wife when necessary. That's what being set out there. And it points us then also to the drama of the gospel. Reformation week. My favorite passage of Luther is actually the last of the theological theses of the Heidelberg Disputation. It says something like this, the love of man comes into being through that which is lovely to it. That's how we as human beings experience love. Sometimes in class, there's an engaged couple there. It's always fun to, uh, to get the husband, the fiance, into trouble. I'll ask him, so what made you fall in love with, uh, uh, you know, the lovely Debris you're sitting next to. And because it's me, he assumes it's a trick question, and so he hesitates for five seconds before answering it, which is about 10 seconds too long for his fiancée. Uh, and I always say to him, just tell me she was beautiful, man. That's a, that, yeah, that works. She was beautiful, and I fell in love with her. That works. It works, of course, because that's how human love works. We see that which is already good and beautiful, and our hearts move out towards it. Luther, though, ends that thesis saying, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is lovely to it. The love of God is the very antithesis in some ways of human love on that point. We're not loved by God because we are attractive. God does not give his son to die for us because we are attractive and beautiful. He does it for the exact opposite. God's love, in other words, is a love of self-giving. The Levite's love here is the love of self-preservation. So finally, I think this passage points us by way of the negative to the amazing beauty, sovereignty, and uniqueness of God's love. Praise God that God does not treat us as second-class wives. He treats his people as the bride whom he has made lovely and then loves. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, though this is a dark and dismal passage, we thank you, Lord, that it is in your word that we might learn from it. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would never allow us to be proud in our own righteousness. We pray, O oh Lord, that your Holy Spirit would enable us 
to treat others as greater and better than ourselves. But we pray above all, Lord, that you would seal on our hearts the great, infinite, unconditional, creative nature of your own love that you have given to us and demonstrated to us in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these in his name. Amen.